Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 268. Good Yontif, tonight is Yud Bey's Tammuz, going into Yud Gimel Tammuz, the Chag Ha-Gu'ula of the Friedrich Rebbe in the year Tofresh Pezayin. Arrested for what they called counter-revolutionary activity, which was basically Harbotzes and Hafotzes Ateirev Ayadus, his um, strengthening and bolstering Teda and Yiddishkeit in the country which was called Machere Mosach Abarzel, behind the Iron Curtain, or Medina Ahi, as the Rebbe often referred to it, that country, the place where Lubavitch and Chabad was born, and of course with the rise of Bolshevism and uh, a new wave of anti-Semitism swept through Russia, unprecedented, even by the measures of the anti-Semitism before, to try to abolish every remnant of Jewish life in this country that had, some say, over 10 million Jews. And the Friedrich Rebbe single-handedly took upon himself the mission to defy that gzeda, that decree, that, and, uh, and go, went against an entire macht, entire government, entire superpower. And every way possible to preserve Yiddishkeit in that country. There are many, many stories that are told about the effects of the Friedrich Rebbe's Mesiris Nefesh. One famous, or famous, it's not so famous, it was actually always shrouded in mystery, was in the year Tofresh Pei Beis, which would be 1922. The Friedrich Rebbe called in nine people in a very secret, top secret meeting. I made a Krisas Bris with them, a pact, a blood pact, that they would do everything possible to preserve and keep Yiddishkeit going, whatever they can do. Build secret mikvahs, shecht meat, slaughter meat, kosher meat, circumcised children, underground shuls, whatever it took. And this was, of course, a grave danger to all of them. Most of them were killed. My grandfather was one of them, my namesake. He survived. He was arrested and sent off to Siberia, but he survived. The reason I mention it is not just on a personal note, it's also captured so much the climate of what it took, this Mesiris Nefesh. Now this was Pei Beis. Some say it was Pei Gimel, but the Rebbe in Tafshin Lamed Beis, which would be from Pei Beis 1922 to 1972, 50 years later, spoke about it, the Fabrengen, and actually learned a lesson, which we'll mention in a moment, we'll discuss in a moment, for each one of us. So in Tafshin Pei Beis, and then five years later, they would ultimately arrest the Friedrich Rebbe on Tezva of Sivan. He sat in prison, which again, was, there was no due process. It was a situation, it's hard to describe. Mamish Sarkonis Nefoshis. And they actually sentenced him to death. They knew he was the inspiration and the root and the source for the leadership of all of Chabad and all of Yiddishkeit in Russia at the time. And therefore, they thought they put him down. They put down all of Yiddishkeit. But finally, on Gimel Thomas, the third of Thomas, the sentence was commuted to exile in Kastrama. And then, ten days later, nine, ten days later, due to the fact that the government office was closed um, due to a holiday, so Yud Gimel Thomas was the official release. But Yud Beis Thomas was when they already commuted the entire sentence, and he was freed to go home. Ultimately, it would leave that he would leave the country. The next year, right after Simchas Teira, Tafresh Peiches, which would just be Thomas Ovel, talking about three months later, three, four months later, Friedrich Kareb would leave with his family to Poland and then began the next leg of his journey, ultimately coming to America in 1940. But this period in time was not just unprecedented in history, both the, the, the harshness, which existed also before in history, but this mysterious nefesh that the Friedrich Kareb would not budge, would not compromise in any possible way, and recognize the real battle and war. And you think about it, rational, Friedrich Rebbe standing up against a, 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 a Stalinist government where they completely, they murdered millions and millions of people. But the Friedrich Rebbe sensed that it was not just a matter of numbers, it was a matter of spirit. It was a matter of quality over quantity. And when he was threatened by the Jewish of all people, the Fsektia, the Jewish communists, many of them children and grandchildren of Chassidim. When he was threatened by them, he stood with that vigor and pride, unwavering, undaunted by their threats, 
all the different stories, and ultimately said, when they said to him, Rebbe, we'll see who will prevail, and he said, yes, we'll see who will prevail. And when you look back, who did prevail? They were all shot and killed. That government ultimately fell, causing much damage and much destruction. But the Friedrich Rebbe came out from there, rebuilt, first in Europe, and then came to America, and here we are. I wouldn't be doing this program. There wouldn't be thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of thriving Jewish communities as if not for this Mr. stuff is the stand that he took. So today, thank God, we don't live in such times. We don't have the same challenges. But still, Mr. Nefesh is not only sacrificing one's life, physical life, it's giving away one's it's dedication. It's total dedication. Self-sacrifice is sacrificing the self for a higher cause. And in that year, Tov Shalom Beis, 1972, in Yud Beis Tam, the Rebbe spoke a hero, even from this crisis bris, which we think is a, a rare occasion, only under such circumstances. No, that we all have to make such a crisis bris. We all have to make such a pact, a blood pact, that we commit with, with every ounce of our energy, with every part of our lives, without having to give away physical lives, thank God without torture, but total commitment to spreading Yiddishkeit and to reaching every possible Jew we can reach, and for that matter, to reach every non-Jew. With what? With the message of God, with the message of Taylor, that we're here on a mission in this world to transform the world, to make it a dirbe tachtenim, a home for God. You can do it in a very lackadaisical way, in a very passive way, almost optional. You can do it with a passionate way, and you can do it in a mesidus nefesh way. Sirius means it's total dedication, a 24-7 commitment, exactly as they did then. Then it came out of persecution. It came out of darkness. And today, even in the spirit of we live in, in the comfort of our lives, the Messias Nefesh is to get out of our comfort zone and have that same absolute commitment. So the Yudbeis Thomas lesson is relevant today more than ever, in a very different way. Today, as I said, prosperity leads often to apathy. When you get fat over the fat of the land, you begin to you begin to kick, you begin to stace, you begin to um, feel that you're uh, you're it, you're the center of the world. So we have our challenges of Mercedes Nefesh today that's equivalent to that you based Thomas. So though it is now Petofresh Pezai, now we're in Tofresh Tofshinayin Tess, so we're talking about Tafshin Tafresh Pei Zayin would be Tafshin Ayin Zayin would have been um, eighty years, pay ninety years. I'm sorry, it's ninety-two years when it happened. Yet, yet, and completely different circumstances. Yet, the mission and the lesson is the same. The the Yud Beis Tamas Tafshin Lamed Beis is worth listening to. It's on recording. You can also read it. Very powerful sikh in relevance to our lives today. It connects also to the Pasha Bolok. Bolok was yet also another pasha, another chapter, where Bilom was commissioned by Bolok to do what? To do exactly what the communists wanted to do, to curse the Jews and to annihilate them. Bilom, of course, was a prophet, so he couldn't say what God did not tell him to say, so instead of fulfilling Bolok's wishes, he prophesied, but the greatest blessings came out of his prophecy. How good, how kind, how great, or how beautiful are the Tents of Yaakov, Mishkin Nesechi Yisrael, and so on. He even prophesizes the, the prophecy of Mashiach comes out of the mouth of Bilam, not out of the mouth of Moshe. Why? Because out of darkness comes a light that even Kedusha, holiness, can never bring. Just like the great strength that came out of Yud-Beis Thomas, as the Rebbe explains in many sikhs, that it opened up the channels in Tav Shekhov Zayin, the year of the Six-Day War, the Rebbe said that the Ku'ula, the Friedrich Rebbe, taking a stand against such a powerful force against holiness, and Teira, and Menschlichkeit, basic, basic humanity, taking that stand and prevailing in his way, in a small way, opened the door, Poschat Sinner, opened the door, paved the way for the miracles and victories that would come later, including the Six-Day War. Amazing. So we never know what our efforts do, especially on the level of Mesiris Nefesh. It breaks through our resistance, but you don't always see immediately the impact. But in time, you see it. So when we make that commitment in our personal lives, to our homes and our families, to our children, to ourselves, to our community, wherever you're involved in that type of absolute commitment, sometimes you see quickly the results, but sometimes most of the results you don't see, in, you see it in time. 
you see that investment bears fruit. And that fruit, it creates tremendous change in the world. And this you see in general Judaism. Though we suffered greatly, in time what happened, we've prevailed. We're here today standing to talk about it. Heavy prices were paid. But kashayana esam, as they were oppressed, ken yibra, ken yirba, v'chen yifritz, in direct proportion to that, they blossomed, they flourished, and they blossomed. And you see this out of Yudbeis Thomas as well. So Friedrich writes, Rebbe writes in Tofresh Peches, in his famous letters, which the Rebbe would every year repeat and explain and, and analyze, not me, I, my, the Friedrich Rebbe writes, not, my, not I myself, the, the, the God, Redeemer Yudbeis Thomas, but Kol Yisrael, meaning Kol Machave Teira, the mitzvahs, all those that love Teira mitzvahs, and even B'Shem Yisrael Yechuna, even someone who considers himself that Jew, being a Jew is just a, uh, like a nickname. It's just a, uh, it just uh, happens to be a technicality. Even such a person was redeemed, as the Rebbe explains in a number of sikhs. One good one to look at is Chukas, in the year Tovshim Memches, a very powerful sikh on this topic, but many others. Where the Rebbe explains how the Gaul, it was not just for the Friedrich Rebbe, not just for a certain group, but for all Jews, because it opened up the door when you have such mysterious and commitment in our modern age, it breaks the resistance that ultimately, wherever we are, we have, it's easier to stand strong and be a proud Jew, to stand strong and do our mission, fulfill our mission, not only not non-apologetic, but on the contrary, to be stronger than all the influences around us. And the fact of the matter is, the one with the more resolve is the one that prevails, as the Friedrich Rebbe ultimately prevailed. So Bolok is the same story, Bilam's, the curses become blessings, and the greatest blessings of all. Now, before we continue, I want to just dedicate this program in the merit of the Rebbe Shlucha Dverdeleh Bas Liba. May she be blessed with a complete and speedy recovery. As always, let me use this a, t- a moment for make a few announcements. Every question you ask will be addressed. You can p- pose and submit a question at a new site that we created dedicated to this entire program and its derivatives. It's called chsidisapply.com. There you can anonymously post any question. There are many questions that are coming in, so you may have to wait a little till I re- respond to them, but they will be responded to. You also can find there a bunch of archives of all the, all the archives of the previous episodes, now 267 episodes, as well as essays of the last five years of the essay contest of people of all walks of life submitting essays that do exactly that, bridge chassidus in addressing the contemporary issues and challenges of our lives. So with that said, let me cross-reference this topic of Yudbez, Yud Gimel, Tammuz, and Bolok to episode 73, 123, 169, and 218. When you go there, those episodes, which are all archived, as I said in, the, in my life, chsidisapply.com, the, the YouTube version has it all time-stamped, so you can go directly to the topic where this is addressed. But being that this is already the sixth year that we're doing my life, chsidisapply, so you can imagine we've spoken about these topics almost every year, and that's the references that I'm referring to. So see what I've said now is complementing what was said then. And um, you find a full array of materials on literally almost every subject, including, of course, the timely subjects like we just spoke about to, tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday being Yud Beis Yud Gimbal Tammuz, the Chag HaGaula, and Parsha Bolok this week. Shabbos will also be Yud Shivosa Betamuz. Shivosa Betamuz Nidche, because at Shabbos, the fast is pushed off till Sunday. So next Sunday, we'll talk about that more in detail. But I'm mentioning it because it's coming to Shabbos as well. And Shabbos itself transforms also a negative into a positive. Because you don't fast. So what do you have? The positive side of the, of the fast is, The transformation of these fast days to holidays and celebration. With that, let us go into a few questions that were asked, new questions. Some are completely new, some are variations of previous questions, as you shall see. Okay, being that we're in the summer months here in this hemisphere, and in Israel, in this upper hemisphere, so here's a question related to that. Dear Rabbi, by bringing in, what is, what is Chabad custom regarding bringing in an early Shabbos? Which means even though Shabbos technically may begin sometime like in New York, this past Shabbos was around 8.06, 
was the lichtzinnen. So there are those that want to bring it in earlier, whether it's for children or for community or different reasons that you can start a Shabbos early. So, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I Baruch Hashem have seven children from an infant age to 12. These late Shabbosim are stressful and difficult. The young kids under five obviously fall asleep before the Friday night meal. The five, seven, nine, and 11-year-old all insist on staying up until I come home from shul and start Kiddush close to 10 p.m. There is no... There is often grumpiness fights between the kids, sleepiness by the table, and the kids are tired the next morning. This puts stress on my wife, but no matter how hard she tries, they will not go to sleep. It is so much easier in the winter when we make kiddush at 7 p.m. and have a lovely family meal with divrei teira, negunim, stories. There are minyanim which do kabbal Shabbos around 6.30 p.m., even in the summer, so the families can have a proper meal. Is this okay according to Minik Chabad? to bring in Shabbos early, as it states in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch states clearly, you can. I have heard many people say that it isn't our, meaning our Chabad meaning. Yet, I've also heard that the Rebbe Davin Kabbalah's Shabbos early a few times. What comes first, family Shalom Bayis, when it is according to Halacha, or meaning Chabad? Thank you. Yes, so Api Halacha and Shulchan Aruch is very clear, you can do it earlier. I did not hear about the Rebbe Davin earlier, but if anybody has information, please pass it on to me. L'tayel Sarabim, L'teva Sarabim, and I'll share it in the next programs. There is an answer to the Rebbe Tetzach, who was doing a Shabbaton, welcoming people to the community. They wanted to make an early Shabbos for the Pigisha, Pigisha it was called, which means like a meeting, an encounter with Chabad. The Rebbe said, basically wrote, that it's not the Minig HaMokim. Now, that was taken to mean either Minig HaMokim means 770, where the Rebbe is, that's not the Minig, or Chabad in general. So that's quite, but either way, that doesn't necessarily reflect a situation where you're talking about children and uh, the, the circumstances. The Rebbe was talking about a policy. Tzach is bringing people, these are adults, to set a policy, do early Shabbos. It's not the custom by the Chabad, which doesn't mean it's completely acceptable. It's not our custom. It means either the Rebbe's custom or Chabad in general, as I said, both options. But regarding situations where, let's say, the children are, are uh, Shabbos is very difficult, or Shalom bias issues, um, I have not seen from the Rebbe, but I would say, and I'm, this may be going on a limb a bit, because I don't have a direct source, and I'm stating I don't have a source, that based on certain circumstances, if you ask a Rav, or you ask a Mashpia, Chassidish Mashpia will probably make an exception. Not as a matter of policy, but as a matter of convenience and practicality in, under certain circumstances, which also explains why in some Chabad houses they do it, because simply people wouldn't come or they couldn't come if it was very, very late. This is not a matter of policy. It's a matter of practicality based on the Allah. But if you have the option, like the Rebbe said to Tzach, especially in the Rebbe's Dalad Amis, the Rebbe said not to do it, which means I'm not our custom here. Which would also, of course, leave the impression that those that come, that this is something Chabad does. So you also have to be careful, especially when you're doing it around the Rebbe's particular personal environment, meaning 770 and so on. If anybody has more information on this, beyond what I've shared, I'd be happy to um, share with the public, if you can please pass it on to me. And where you, can you do this? Again, at chassidahsupply.com, you'll, there's there's you'll see there's a form where you can submit anything. If you want to leave me your email address, you have to put it in there, because, because if you don't, as I said, it's completely anonymous. Excuse me. Next question. What will Chabad look like in 30 years? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your consistency to this program over the last few years. That itself is a lesson. On a previous episode, you made mention that the mission of Chabad Chosid hasn't changed since Gimel Tammuz. As I mentioned that two, years, two weeks ago, connection to Gimel Tammuz. And of course, many more times. What is your opinion on what Chabad and Lubavitch will look like in 30 years? In light of the fact that there are more Lubavitches attending college than ever before, more Lubavitches entering the workforce than ever before, and in light of the fact that there are limited places to go on shlichus, the rise of CTEEN, YJP, Friendship Circle has been phenomenal, but even these programs are not limitless. So what will Chabad look like in 30 years? Okay, it definitely piqued my interest when I heard that, when I saw the title of the question. So let's begin from the beginning. We are believers that achakaleh b'chol yem the Mashiach was coming any day, any moment. When you include, include into the picture, into the equation, the Rebbe's words, they were literally on the threshold, and we finished the Birurim. 
and it's up to us to do to open our eyes. He gives mangalaschem im dohachin kulchem. I can go on. Which Tzuki puts the kneplach. We already polished the buttons as well. Then thirty years will be long after the gula comes. That's how achabat chosid. About every Jew should believe, and especially achabat chosid. So what will be with Chabad after Mashiach comes? It will thrive and flourish because Chsidis, Tedos HaChsidis is Tedos HaShel Mashiach. Whatever we have now from the Rabbeim is a taste, an appetizer. Like we taste Erev Shabbos on Friday of the foods of Shabbos. So imagine what Chabad Chsidis will be like when Shabbos comes. It will be thriving and all over the world. Uh, when we say, The entire world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover, cover the sea. Or in the earlier expression of the Rambam, the same page, chapter 12, at the end of Mishnah Teireh. The business of the world will be nothing but knowing God. And how do you know God? When you learn Chassidus. So Chassidus Chabad will be beyond any expectations. They'll need teachers. People who learn chassidus, people who know chassidus from before the gola comes. So that is the best, the best scenario and what we hope for and we believe in every moment will be the case. So 30 years we'll be reunited with the Rebbe, reunited with the other Rabbeim, we'll be reunited and the whole world will change. Chassidus Chabad will reign supreme, not as a movement, not as a maflag, the Alter Rebbe didn't want a party. As Tedus Hashem, that will teach people about God and that's when we learn Chassidus all time, all the day, all day long. And everything will be directed and guided. So Chassidus, so Chabad has a very bright future when you look at it that way. If Chas V'Sholem, as the Rebbe always says, Mashiach Chal Tzachop, Nochatok, Mashiach delays for another day, for another hour, for a short while, we have our work cut out. I don't want to say 30 years, it's not the way a Chassid, not someone that's heard the Rebbe speak, would speak about making plans for 30 years. But why did you ask about tomorrow? Whatever's tomorrow is 30 years. If Mashiach doesn't come in 30 years, the work is cut out for us. We have much to do. Continue to teach Chassidus, to learn Chassidus, because that is exactly what Tzedos HaShel Mashiach is. So whatever we're doing has to increase. But we don't think like that. As I said, I reiterate again, we're not thinking about 30 years down the road. Now I know what the question is trying to say. What will happen with the culture of Chabad? If Mashiach, God forbid, doesn't come, what will happen? So as I said, Chabad is not a culture. Chabad is a Teda movement. It's like asking a question after Moshe Rabbeinu passed away. What will happen with the Teda? What will happen with mitzvahs? What will happen with the Jewish people? So look what happened. It's 3,300 years later. Am Yisrael Chai. Teda is Nitzchis. Ani Hashem Leishanisi. Ubnei Yisrael Lechal God does not change and the Jewish people never, God forbid, will be annihilated. And though we have our challenges and there are plenty of challenges there are, we continue to be because we are standing on the shoulders of giants and we're standing above all on Tehra Mitzvah's Va'atem Hadvekim Chaim Kul Chamayim. Va'atem Hadvekim Bashem Alekechim Chaim Kul Chamayim. When you cleave to God, the source of life, you remain alive. So Chabad is, of course, a chilek of Tehra, chilek of Klal Yisrael. So therefore, I'm not worried about Chabad. If you're talking about the cultural elements, cultural elements is not the discussion applies. It's not a discussion that's more of an anthropological or sociological study that's not really the scope of this discussion here. That will live on, and those that embrace it will live on with it. God forbid, like, like the Rebbe speaks about, in general, those that, God forbid, in some way, compromise the relationship with Teda, ultimately the Yiddishkeit does not also last. And they usually disappear, or they return to it. So the same thing is with Chabad. As far as shlichus and the forms of shlichus, as I said, there were there's seven and a half billion people on the planet. A lot of chassidus has to be taught. So we have a very big job ahead of us. And that's where the Mashiach, which we're sure will come before then, and Chaz Roshon, he delays by a day, we still have that work. That's the reproach that I've been trained to, to, to uh, how to respond to the question of, this, of that nature. Next question. Naming a child. When naming a child after a tzaddik rebbe, can we combine the name with that of a layperson? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Thanks so much for the incredible work that you do. Is there an Indian to not combine the names of a tzaddik rebbe with that of a relative layperson when naming your child? Thanks so much. So there's actually a specific, explicit letter from the rebbe, dated the 12th of Tavis, Tavshin Tes, Zion, 
That would be 12th of Tevis. That's probably already the year 1956. And it's printed in Igris Kedish, the Rebbe's Letters, volume 12, page 215. Where he says clearly in the name of the Friedrich Rebbe not to mix the two. The letter for the, the Friedrich Rebbe says it also explicitly in the letter. In Igris of the Friedrich Rebbe, volume 9, page 214. Not to mix Kedish and Chayel is how he calls it. The holy and the mundane. In the Rebbe's Igris, in volume 12, look also on page 185, which is also somewhat connected to this. So there's clear Herod not to mix the two. Since we're on the topic already, what's the source in general to name after a tzaddik? So we have, first of all, there's Ovis Drabnosen, Tezvav Gimel, 15.3, talks about someone who converted due to Hillel's influence on him. Questions if he's the convert in the Gemara in Baruch and Shabbos or not. And he says he named him after Hillel. But there you could say it could be because he was a tzaddik, but also because he influenced him. There's a Maimer, and maybe there's more Maimerim, a Maimer from the Friedrich Rebbe called Omer Avalazar, Beis Nissen, Tofresh Sadik Dalad, 5694, that would be essentially 1934, where he says explicitly the Minig to name children after Tzadikim. Now the Gemara in Yuma 38b talks the negative, not to name after Rishoyim, after wicked people. So their name should disappear. And because it affects the child. So technically, in context, if you think about it, you can extrapolate from there, perhaps, that not the name after Rosh, but after Tzadik, because Seich Tzadik Levrocha, Tzadik's name, does perpetuate. That would be an Indian, even though he doesn't say it explicitly, but maybe you can derive it from the negative. Okay. I also want to refer you to episode 98, where we talk about the power of a name and the connection of a name to Neshamis and so on, what the names are about. Now, again, if anybody has more information on this topic or any topic that I've addressed, please share it for the benefit of the public and for all people. Okay, next question. Okay, moving along. These are questions, as I said, have come in the last few months. Some of them are more recent, all depending on the topic, which we choose every week, what to group together. Next question. Should we be concerned with secular values seeping into Chabad ideology? And here's the specifics. In recent years, we have seen a slow but steady introduction of secular, liberal values in the Lubavitch community, taking the form of, quote, women's empowerment programs, end quote, blaming the system for personal failures, and the like. While all these ideas sound beautiful superficially, as chassidim, we all know what our stances on these issues are. While Lubavitch generally takes pride in being extroverted, unintimidated and ready to take on the world? At what point does our openness become self-destructive and essentially un As we know, the Rebbe's approach was rarely head-on collision, but rather superficial acceptance while coyly redefining the idea to the point of compatibility with Hasidic values. This tactic served as a useful tool in enabling non-religious Jews to identify with Teda without feeling ideologically attacked. The problem is that Rebbe was a master of acceptance, quote-unquote, without compromising Hasidic values. We are not as talented and it's much easier for us to lose ourselves in this game, no matter how much discussion we think we have. Do you believe my concern has any legitimacy to it? If you do, do you see it as ultimately ultimately inevitable and a manifestation of what we can only call Yerida Sadedas, the descent of generations, as misnagdish as that may sound? And if you do believe it is inevitable, at least in some ways, is there anything we can do to slow down the process? P.S. As a Baal this issue particularly concerns me because Yiddishkeit provided a sense of ideological stability, which was very beautiful to me coming from a reform, wishy-washy background. The idea, is, the idea of blurred lines in the Chabad community is very unnerving to me because Chabad has always represented a certain steadfastness and stability, rare, stability rarely found in other Jewish communities. Apologies for the length of this letter, but a response would be extremely appreciated if possible. Thank you. So first I refer you to episodes 24, 25, and 181, where I talk about a similar idea. I have to take issue, first of all, before responding, with some of the tone of this. Like the word coyly on the Rebbe, I read it, and the word like this game, as if like the Rebbe was man- man- maneuvering or something. The Rebbe is a Eid. 
meaning a teda through and through. If something is done, it means it's teda lechatchila. The Rebbe was not looking to be politically correct and not looking for ways to placate ideologically or not intimidate people who are secular. At the same time, the Rebbe firmly believed that when you present teda properly, without compromise, it's very appealing. Of course, like the Rebbe would say many times, you can't expect someone to suddenly do all 613 mitzvahs, but you tell them about 613 mitzvahs. So there's no compromise. In the language of the Mishnah, you have to love everybody. And there's no judgment, and you accept everybody for who they are. You don't bring the Teda to them, you bring them to the Teda. Actually, this is a letter that Rebbe wrote to my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, in the early uh, 50s. He asked the Rebbe about way to do hafotza today when you're meeting different types of Jews. And the Rebbe brought this uh, diuk in that letter to him about that. So how, what, how do you balance the two? That's not a compromise. It's a darcheneyam. The whole Torah was brought, was given in order to bring peace to the world. Not to fight, not to show negel, as the Rebbe said, to be sharp and rebuke and be angry and judgmental and condescending. The Tate itself says, present me in a pleasant way, because I am, God is pleasant, and all his paths and ways are pleasant. So pleasant does not mean compromise. Pleasant means you present it in a way that is comfortable, that is relevant, that's inspiring, that's not critical. So I just want to put it in the right context. Now that approach, in answering your question, the Rebbe taught us, and anyone listening or reading the Rebbe's talks, this is exactly what he trained us to do. So to suggest that only the Rebbe could do it and none of us can do it, that's not correct. I personally know hundreds of people who do this very effectively. No one's on the level of the Rebbe, but the Rebbe taught us there are methods to this. And if you see someone not doing it, either compromising or being too harsh in presenting it, you know it's not going exactly in the Rebbe's approach. Even the great Moshe Rabbeinu, we learned in this week's Pasha, actually, um, I said in the last week's parsha, Chukas, yesterday's parsha, that Moshe hit the stone when the Abraham told him to speak to the stone. The first time he told him to hit the stone. So one of the lessons of Chassidus is that even if someone's like a stone of heart, a heart of stone, I should say, you don't hit it. You have to talk. Find the right words. Words from the heart enter the heart, as the Rebbe says time and again. So the approach has, the Rebbe taught us continues to be the same approach. The fact that values that are not Chabad, or not Teirah, I should say, secular values seep in, that is an unfortunate fact to those that either do not hold on to the values that way they are, or they don't understand what those values are. And frankly, there are things that we do learn from the world, but as the Rebbe taught us, you learn in a way, Chochmah Bagoyim Tamin, certain things, not that they inform Yiddishkeit, but we can learn certain things from modern, from, uh, from modern techniques and methods. But only when it's api halacha and api chsidis and a mashpia and a rav say so, just as an aside. But above all, we don't need to rely on that. Some people feel either the teda is inadequate, God forbid, that for that we have the response, imreku mikemhu. If it's imreku, meaning you, you find a void or it's empty, it's mikemhu. It's not the teda is missing the answer, you're missing the answer. So you have to dig deeper. Or it's all misunderstanding what the Torah says. So all that we, with, with all due respect to everybody, there is no need to introduce other values into Torah and Yiddishkeit. We have everything we need. Certain things we learn, Alpi yes, we learn. We learn, it's the Rambam, Alta Rebbe says in Tanya, that you can learn Avedis Hashem from things that are even Chochmah Se'elam, and there's Ajoch Pratis and so on. But that's not really the scope of our conversation. So those that really hold on to what the Torah says and know how to present it will have every, all, everything we need. So presentation continues to be in a sensitive way at the same time that it's, um, you don't compromise the standards. And it can be done. I'm not, we all make our mistakes. I try to do it, and I believe I've done it so successfully to some extent. And it's something that we can do. And if you have questions, you ask somebody to make sure you're on the right track. So no, it's not inevitable that things have to seep in because if you stick to the sources, which is more important than ever now, precisely because the Rebbe is not here, Begashmi is for us to go and check with him, to stick to the sources of what the Rebbe said and make sure that you're really authentic and keep maintaining the integrity without any compromise of the sources is more vital than ever because that keeps us honest and keeps us grounded and makes sure that it's all based on a tainted perspective. 
when you have that, you can then translate it and present it in many different ways. And I can talk from my own experience, even to people who have no inkling and no idea what the Teda is. But only when you're grounded. What you find is the two problems I mentioned. Either it's not grounded in Teda, so of course people will wander off from the Teda approach. Or it doesn't have the proper darkeneum, the sensitivity necessary to present it, which also is not really understanding the Teda. It's just taking it either literally or presenting it in a didactic and dogmatic way, in a judgmental way. So the, so the Teichen may be right, but the presentation is wrong. And we need both. We need Eris and Kalim, which means consistent with what the Teda says, but presented in a tzuk genglicha, in a comfortable, and in a relevant way that people can relate to on their terms, just like any good teacher teaches students, doesn't just teach one, all the students one cookie-cutter model, is able to present the idea, educate the child according to his or her way, and customize. That doesn't mean compromise, it means customize. Take the idea in its full integrity and full truth and full truth, and present it. Sometimes to do that, you need examples. You have to spoon feed it step by step. You can't always teach the whole idea. And that, of course, requires a special expertise. So if you can't do it yourself, ask others who know the Rebbe's methodology. So I agree with you completely. We don't need to be wishy-washy. We don't need to in any way be compromising and blurring lines. But for that, you need to be somewhat grounded in the sources have that scholarship behind you, and also the way to present it in the most pleasant and beautiful way, which is, of course, the Rebbe also taught us how to do. Next question. Apathetic davening. How can I address my apathy to davening and make it a meaningful experience? My question relates to davening not being meaningful for me. There are two parts to my question. I'll address them one part at a time because they're somewhat separate. Number one, how can I address my apathy to davening and make it a meaningful experience? I am a husband, father, meaning I have what to daven for, yet I find the davening experience unengaging and I'm completely disinterested. Whilst I daven shachras daily, mainly Shema Shemar I often will miss Minchem Ayrev. I don't forget to daven them most of the time. I remember and yet I have no desire or interest to actually pick up the Siddur and daven. When I do daven, I attempt to do it in the briefest way possible often skipping to the main parts and reciting them quickly. As if it is a burden, I must get through. The same applies for benching. So firstly, as you may know, part of this My Life Chassidus Applied series, because davening is so fundamental in Chassidus, we've been talking about this in an in a on-and-off way during many, many of the programs. So I want to just refer you to episodes 19 and 20, 133, 199 through 201, 203, 253 through 258. And many of those episodes I address this question. It's, a, it's in a way, it's a, I don't want to say lost art, but it's an art that many of us have not really been taught, the art of davening, not in yeshiva and so on. So there I discuss it somewhat. The bottom line is, I have What is the service of the heart? This is davening. So let's just put it in simple English. It's emoting. It's emotional intelligence is developing your ability to emote with God. When you learn Teda, you're understanding God. It's an intellectual experience. Understanding the scholarship, the God's mind, what God wants of us. Emoting is a whole different thing. Emoting means emoting with the divinity. When Moshe went into the Mishkin, it was like a, an intimacy. An intimacy is an emotional thing. So davening essentially is a process of emoting and learning how to emote properly, which also will help you in all areas of life. Because many of us play mind games, we're very good, we're cerebral, but we lack emotional. So my suggestion, this is taken from letters and different places, is in davening, obviously to daven the whole davening in this type of emotional connection may be difficult in the beginning. So choose talk a few prayers, say the rest of it, but choose a few prayers where you focus and concentrate and personalize, whether it's Shema Yisrael Hashem Elekeinu Hashem Echod, whether it's Baruch Shomar, whether it's Moidaani, personalize and find a personal lesson that relates to you personally. And in a way, that's what you're communicating when you're talking to God. How do I unite? How do I connect to God and bring divinity's transcendence into my personal life? And all davening, you can do that. We're not trained. That's why you have to do it step by step. I've elaborated on this, as I said, in the other episodes at length. You have to appreciate what davening can offer you 
which is essentially a way of connecting to a deeper part of yourself. In a personal and emotional way, not just in a cerebral abstract way. There's much more that can be said, but that would be how I would begin. Unfortunately, the apathy is coming from habit and routine, seeing others do this and the way we grew up. So to change this, you have to do something unique. So I would suggest whether Chachas, Mincha, always daven, but for find one or two prayers that speak to you personally, maybe learn a little chassidus before davening as is recommended, and then focus on that, not as a meditation in a, in a conceptual way, meaning a cerebral scholarly type of meditation, but one that you personalize. As you personalize it, you can begin to have an appreciation and it'll actually maybe open up a part of you and then it won't be so apathetic. You may even look forward to it. Now, of course, this is, requires work and this is just one suggestion of many. Okay. Most important thing to remember that three pillars upon which the world stands, Teda, Avedig, Milz, Chasodim. Teda is study. Milz, Chasodim is actions, good deeds. And prayer is Aveda, Aveda, the work on yourself. It could be developing your character, character refinement. I don't want to turn davening into a self-help activity. It's not that sense, but it's emotional growth and emotional connection to your neshama and to Hashem, where the neshama derives from, which in turn is a birur hamidus and working on yourself. If you think of it that way, it becomes much less optional and much more exciting and even and something to look forward to. The second question of this part is to what extent should a spouse be involved comment on their partner's davening. Whilst I'm apathetic to davening, my wife places a high value on it. Often she will comment on my disengaged approach to davening and express her disappointment. I find her involvement frustrating, and not only does it not help motivate me to improve my davening, but rather I associate the irritation with the davening itself, furthering my dislike for it. My response to her is, it's my relationship with God and thus should remain between the two of us. Thank you for addressing the above and providing guidance to assist with engaging in davening and man- managing a spouse's input into davening. So on this topic, I addressed this in episodes 63 and 65. And yes, I would say a spouse, whether it's a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, should not get involved in their partners and their, their spouse's um, davening, as you said, because it could be a source of irritation. And, and especially if you don't see it motivating, just to negate the yodin, just to nag someone, and it's not really le- leading anywhere, will just cause more irritation and like you write accurately. Now I'm sure your spouse means well. She really appreciates what davening and wants to inspire you. So I would recommend to a, to a spouse like that, that a spouse should then find inspiring ways to do so. If you can't, best to leave it alone. You know, sometimes you inspire them in other ways, your spouse, and by effect, by osmosis and by in a, dis, in a di- indirect way can actually have a very strong impact. Okay. And more, as I said in those episodes. Next question. Shidduch information. Okay. Am I responsible to share sensitive information about a potential shidduch with the other party? Here's the question. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. First of all, I would like to thank you for your weekly classes. I often listen and find them inspiring. I was wondering if you can give me advice on a specific question. I was in a position where I mentioned, where I mentored a young adult and we became quite close. This person is a wonderful Balmidis, meaning a wonderful, emotional, kind person, chsidish, seeking to grow, and many, and many, many exceptional talents. However, this person unfortunately has many challenges which in turn affects their emotional health and relationship. A while back, something, a while back, something happened which led me to consult a therapist who diagnosed this person with BPD, bipolar disorder. I researched the disorder thoroughly and unfortunately believe this therapist was correct. This person has stopped communicating with me and refuses all contact. My question is, I am aware that this person is in Shaduchim. Is it my responsibility to share this information with somebody who would be involved in this person's Shaduchim, i.e. a mashpia? So firstly, I address this very directly in episodes 50, 51, 234, 236, 237, and 242. It's not an easy question to answer because on one hand, which means we have to prevent, we cannot allow someone to be hurt by someone, some information we may know, and this may hurt the other person. On the other hand, is it your responsibility to go around and announce something that you know confidentially, and you may not even be 1,000% sure, etc. may not even be a family member. So I would say you should talk to your own mashpia 
and Tarav, there may be ways to get the message not directly to the family necessarily, but maybe Tamashpia who's involved with that family, so they could use the discretion. Because the question that I addressed as well is, let's say, does a person with BPD or other issues like that have to tell somebody up front? So this, the answer to that is always, if it affects the person that will affect the marriage, they have to tell them. The question is when. They have to tell them, not when they're already engaged or close to being engaged or emotionally already connected. It has to be with the ability that the person can walk away. So that someone has to make that decision when to do so. And if you take that in your hands, you can be intervening. It's not your role to do so. So I would say it's important to look into it and see whom you can tell in a confidential, discreet way who will know wisely when, or when and if it should be said, if necessary, without hurting anybody. This is a subtle matter, and that's why it's case by case, and more than that, requires knowing more details, and as I said, talking to the parties. I don't know your role, I don't know who you know, and so on. But not to ignore it completely, on the other hand, also be careful. It's not just go ahead and announce it, and so on. I don't mean announce it in the streets, obviously, but even to the right people, it has to also be done with the right discretion. And more on this is in those episodes that I referred. Let's do some follow-up now. First of all, follow-up, Gimel Thomas, two weeks ago. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you very much for the weekly episodes. They are absolutely beautiful. In the previous episode discussing Gimel Thomas, this is episode 266, I, re- I realized you wouldn't mention the words Yeme Dehilula, Yeme Hilula, Yeme Hilula on Gimel Thomas. It seemed like you were trying to avoid saying it by all means. If I may ask the reason for that, I listened also to other Chabad rabbis about Gimel Thomas, and they did mention it as a Yeme Hilula. I'm just wondering out loud, what's the reason for it? Hatzloch Rabbah. Okay. As I said, I always take direct questions, and I appreciate the question. My answer is yes, I didn't mention it. And to be very honest, it's a very, very personal reason. And that is, Gimel Thomas is a difficult day for me to talk about altogether. I talk about it because, as the Friedrich Rebbe said, it's hard to talk, but it's hard not to talk. It's, harder, it's hard to talk, but it's harder to be silent, rather. Because it's an important day that we have to address, but it's a mysterious day. And frankly, I would prefer not to talk about it, but I have to, so I do. Now, to use terms, I'm not going to make a designation. It's my personal choice to avoid using any words that just I find difficult to express. Is it a yemelula or not? I'll let other bigger experts determine. Is it a yardside or not? Let others determine a well. This don't, should not be misinterpreted as some type of childish or some type of crazy idea. It's a personal choice. So Gimel Thomas is an expression many of us use simply because it's difficult to talk about such a sad day. And yes, we talked, the Rebbe is not here, Begashmiz. And yes, the expressions used on previous Sadiqim and Rabbeim was Yemilula, Yortzait, Stalkus. Yemilula actually is a positive word sometimes. Yemilula is connected also to celebration, like a wedding. Seiran Rajbi, Yemilula de Rajbi. I just find it difficult to say on the Rebbe, and that's why I didn't say it. This should not be interpreted one way or another. I'm not telling people what to do, what not to do. It's my own personal choice. You got it right. And that's all I really can say about the matter. But it's not, a, it's not a shita. It's not a principle one way or the other. It's just my own personal preference. And I think I, I talked about the subject. I didn't need to use any words. So I used that. And uh, that's, let's, let's leave it at that. Okay. Pidya Nefesh. So we talked about the root of Pidya Nefesh. And I spoke about call of going to the Moras Machpelah. It doesn't say clearly Pidya Nefesh there. And yet, someone wrote, Rashi says he went to the Kivri Ovis to pray that he not become ensnared with the spies. That's correct. To me, that is the very definition of a Pidya Nefesh. Pidya Nefesh means to redeem a soul. So by not being ensnared, he's saying that exactly is Pidya Nefesh. It's interesting, by the way, the Pidya Nefesh, even though we write the pan, Pidya Nefesh was always a Pidyan like Pidyan, like a Pidyan Haben, or Pidyan Shvuim, is with by paying something. It usually refers to the Zdoki you give to the Rebbe, and he should intervene on our behalf. But we also include with it a note and we read Pidyan Nefesh on that. So he's saying Pidyan Nefesh is what exactly what Kalov did. Obviously Kalov went to Kivriovis. But Maynav Kamina, what difference does it make between Kivriovis and Sadiqim who are alive? We know that the pan we submit will surely be received by the Rebbe. Meaning we gave the Rebbe a pan, not just when you go to the oil, before Gimel Thomas. We know that the pan we submit will surely be received by the Rebbe just as if he took it from our hand. That's today. Although I heard a story, I believe it was uh, it was from one of the Raskins trying to deliver a pigeon to the Rebbe in the year before his Nasius. 
meaning 1950, Tavshin and the Rebbe told him to visit his father-in-law at the oil. The Chassid replied, it is not our custom to daven to, to a chair. And the Rebbe took the pidyon. Bottom line, Yeshu to you for all your efforts. Okay, some additional points I just read. But bottom line is, yes, I would say kolov in that sense, the spirit of pidyon, just the language pidyon nefesh is not used there. But the idea, yeah, you could say it's derived from there. Okay, another follow-up. Next follow-up is polygamy. This was last week's episode, 267. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your inspiring speeches in Melbourne over Gimel Thomas. Last week I was in, in Melbourne for Gimel Thomas, Shabbos, and a few days before and after, in Sydney and Melbourne for bringing and speaking. So this person is referring to my being there. So thank you for your inspiring speeches in Melbourne over Gimel Thomas. I was exceptionally impressed that even though you were overseas, you still recorded an episode of my life Chassidus Applied, which was last Sunday, though I was in Melbourne. I had recorded it beforehand. Judging by your usual backdrop of Svarim, it would seem that you recorded it before you flew to Australia. That is real dedication, and I am very inspired by that. At the Malava Malka in Melbourne, you spoke about the importance of being committed to shiurim, to classes, and I can see that you do exactly that. I hope to strengthen my own commitment to shiurim based on your inspiration. Kola kavod. I have a follow-up question about polygamy. You mentioned that the Taylor's allowance of polygamy has to do with the spiritual significance of the possibility of having several makablim, several recipients, for one mashpia, one um, transmitter, one zohar, one mass male. If I understood correctly, this was necessary for certain holy figures, such as the Ovis and Imoes, well, particularly Ayakov, but with the advent of Cherem the Rabbeinu Geshem, who put on a decree that there should no longer be polygamy, this is now discouraged and usher for Ashkenazim at least. I was pondering the fact that the Torah's restriction on polygamy, that a woman cannot marry more than one man, gives rise to the Aguna crisis, which is a source of pain and anguish for so many people, unfortunately. How are we to understand this from a Chassidus perspective? Well, I, I think I'll explain, because a woman is the level of makabel. Makabel is, in a different makablim can, there can be one mashpia can have several makablim, but every makabel has to have one mashpia. And that's why you don't have the ability of having polygamy the other way around, whatever it would be called. That's the bottom line. The fact that it can cause a good crisis, that's like saying just because some things can go wrong doesn't mean we're going to change the basic fundamentals of Ishtalshalus and how the way that God created the world and the laws of Tera. We have to address the issue of people, God forbid, who uh, leave a woman un, un, not divorced and abandon them. That's a horrible, horrible thing in the Tera. I've spoken about this many times. And clearly Rabbanim have to address that issue. But we're not going to go change a whole process of something that's so fundamentally based Make a woman not a woman, for example, make her not a, into something she's not because there's a crisis. So basically, you don't take two wrongs, don't make a right, basically. Thanks again, and keep up the great work. After your visit in Melbourne, I've been encouraging people to subscribe to this program called Tuv. Okay, thank you. Now, there's a, there's a follow-up to anti-Semitism, which goes back to episodes 251, 252, 263, and 265. It's, as I've mentioned a number of times, there's a lot of good points here, even though I would not really immerse myself to this detail, but because I found good points, I said I'd read sections of it. So this is a person who committed himself to redress every type of anti-Semitism and methods that we can do to counter it. And I give him already my comments in those previous episodes, which I don't have to do again. So let me read one more section of this long letter, and the future episodes I'll read other parts. We'll finally get through it. It's, an, it's quite long, actually. But good. So after addressing the issue of um, anti-Semitism based on saying that Jews related to communism, the second major issue this fellow writes, and many white Gentiles would put it in first place, is the lawlessness and damages due to unrestricted illegal immigration and open borders. It's like the white supremacists who are against immigration, including against Jews coming to this country over the years. Now that issue is not there, but there was, especially during World War II and before that. Why, WGs, which is why Gentiles, view illegal immigrants just a second. Okay, they view illegal immigrants as an immediate and dire threat to their well-being. They are outraged by crimes committed by illegals and at having to support them with their tax dollars. 
They see wages stagnating due to the huge influx of labor. They see the greatest country in modern times descending into third world status. This is a major agmas nefesh to WGs, white Gentiles, much anguish, whose ancestors had sacrificed to build and defend America. Some well-known organizations like the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, highest, are viewed as Jewish organizations, even though they are liberal organizations whose mandate has changed dramatically over the decades. These organizations are at the forefront of pushing for open boundaries. In addition, there are long lists of non-Orthodox rabbis and rabbinites, rabbinites, who have publicly signed their names to proclamations calling for open borders. This call for open borders is based on a twisted and distorted interpretation of Tikkun Olam, which is not the Torah definition of Tikkun Olam. And the person adds a great link which explains this in detail. It is a major issue for WGs, white Gentiles, is that if, God forbid, the country spirals down into third world status, socialism is great until you run out of other people's money, as Margaret Thatcher said. Jews have the option to run to Israel, while WGs have nowhere to run. We as a community must publicly proclaim the Torah definition of Tikkun Alam and unequivocally disassociate ourselves from open borders. Okay, well, you know what? That's questionable. Some will say we don't have to go to extreme. Certain open borders are, are, um, are acceptable. And, and, and everything has its limits. There are government laws. My, my point is I always say with anti-Semitism, the best approach is the positive approach. I'm reading it because, as I said, there's, I find value in it. But I don't know if open borders or not open borders are going to make the difference of what our position. Anti-Semites and anti-Semite are just looking for an excuse. That doesn't mean you have to feed it. You have to always be discretionary. And, um, and, and yes, we could have the concept of chesed, of having open borders. The country always, always believed it's not open borders, but certain limited guidelines for allowing in others from other countries. So that's not the terrible thing. And I wouldn't go with this extreme approach. Okay. With that, let us go on to the chesedist question of the week. Chesedist question is on chapter 15 in Tanya. In the beginning of the chapter, the Rebbe says, that the difference between a tzaddik and a beni is that a tzaddik is an evid and a beni could be an oivid. The Alter Rebbe speaks there about what it says in the Posik in Malachi, avodai v'loy avodai. It says, uh, evidelic, it, uh, the lotion is exactly like this. Let's go to Peri Tezvav. Just a moment. Which suggests that a tzaddik is not the same thing as an Eved Elikim. So, and a Rosh is not Eved but that's not what we're addressing right now. So he explains the difference between Eved Elikim to a tzaddik is Eved is Lashon Heva. He's presently serving. A tzaddik has already killed his Yetzirah. She could say he's an Eved Hashem. He's a servant of God. Like a Chochem or a Melech. He already became. But right now he doesn't have to do any more work. So the concept of work is a bainani dafke. So that's what Evadelikim is. Not a tzaddik. A tzaddik could, is not an Evadelikim necessarily. So the question this person is asking, however, the Gemorech Giga, which talks about this topic and brings that posik in Malachi, Giga noted later in the chapter says, we're talking about Giga and Adaf, um, let me just give it to you. Tesomet Beis, 9b. Noted later in the chapter, it says, Avodeh v'loy avodeh tarvayut tzadikim gemurin inhu. Both avodeh and not avodeh are both tzadikim gemurin. Which seems to contradict the statement that a tzadik is an evid, not an evid. In other words, there is a tzadik, v'loy avodeh. But there's a tzadik that's a befedish avodeh. That's what the Gemara says. So how do you reconcile that? So interestingly, you may be aware of this, maybe not, the Alter Rebbe's Tanya that we have printed is a Madura Basra. It's the final version. There was a Madura Kama in Tanya, which means manuscripts that the first, the first version, the first, and the Alter Rebbe even was Mefarsim and spread that as well, that got out. In the year Tovshim Membeiz, Memalav Membeiz, the Rebbe directed that they should publish Lukute Amore Madura Kama, Tanya, the first Madura with footnotes that compare it to Tfus, and there's differences, quite a few. For example, entire chapter 30 and entire chapter 32 are only added in the final version of Tanya, not in the original Madura Kama. So the question that he's asking is, 
The Alter Rebbe actually answers in Madura Kama. For some reason, he took it out in the Madura Bas, in Perek Aleph of all places. So if you look in chapter 1, when he talks about Tzadik Ben Nirosha, he says there's the concept of a... Of a, 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 a let me just open it up here. Shema yeah. Musl. That's someone that's called Nikrit Tzadik who Shema Musl in Nishar Ve'enish. Then we say somebody has Rubei Mitzvahs and Miyut Avedis, that Shema Musl is called a Tzadik. He's not actual Tzadik. And that's why the Tanya says that Tzadik Gomor is actually someone who doesn't have any Avedis and Isaiah Tzahara has been killed. Two levels in that Tzadik Gomor and Tzadik Shena Gomor. So then he goes on and says, V'chein Hoda Amrina B'chigigah the Avid, this exact language. That what it says in Chigigah, that both the Avid and the Loyavade are both called Sadikim Gmurim, who Gamkin Shem Hamushal Bavadai. It's only a Shem Hamushal, it doesn't really mean the Tzadik. It's only in passing, it's only an expression he's using. For the Gemara means to say Shem Hanoshim Kshedim. They're kosher people, Umachzikim Beteris Hashem. And they hold on to Tehidus Hashem. But it's not really the definition of a tzaddik, Gomur. So he answers that question, he anticipates this in the Madura Kama. So in other words, when it says now, so when it says tzaddik, and so it says the fact that it says in the Gemara that a tzaddik is either is Eivadalikim and Loyavadai both, that tzaddik of Eivadalikim is not the tzaddik than Tanya. The tzaddik that already has killed his Yetzirah or doesn't have a Veda to do anymore. He's an Eved, but not an Eved Elikim. I, the Gemara calls a tzaddik, it's only Shema Mushal, the Alter Rebbe already bavonet. You have this concept in other places as well, I think in Teira Eir and Mishpotim, I believe. Yeah, tzaddik madregis odem kosher she'en Russia. So sometimes tzaddik means just simply, it's a euphemism saying he's a righteous person. And then there's tzaddik in the full sense of the word is what Tanya explains. So the Gemara is using it in the looser sense, like he says clearly in the chapter 1 of Tanya. It's a chidush in Gemara Take, but that's the pshat that Alter Rebbe says in Madura Kama. Okay. Let's now do the three essays. So we're doing the essay contest 2019. We'll do each essay. There are three Hebrew essays this time. And all excellent essays. You could see people really invested and worked in them and, and worthy reading. They're all posted at mylifechsidahsupplied at chsidahsupplied.com. You'll see the new essays are posted, and if you subscribe to our newsletter, we send you the, when the new essays are posted. They're all really good, good. So the first one in Hebrew, Kelim Shlachtim B'Tipul. Essentially, uh, intervention in, uh, tools for intervening. Hashimush B'Chush the use of art as a way of intervening and helping person grow. The Mishnoseh of the Rebbe, in the Torah and the Chassidus of the Friedrich Rebbe. Art. This was Mishael El Malem. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Mishael El Malem, age 41, Jerusalem, Israel. She works in Misrada Chinuch in the education department as a psychotherapist. So this essay, exactly as it suggests, takes Friedrich Rebbe's take on art and the various letters he written and so on. And turns it into the difference between chush and kishin, a talent and a skill, and explains how it becomes a marshal, an example for a person's life. And then also the effect of art itself, when you look at art and how it impacts a person, the strong impact is also a vision type of impact. It talks about the three different types of tzir. Someone envisions and imagines, which gives birth to a feeling. Another is Another is that you're able to remember and recall things that happened in the past by imagining things. That's a chushatsir, people who can describe things that happened in the past. And that's a, that, that's someone in yeah. And then there's chush bedibur. It's here in describing people who have the ability to describe a story very graphically and very perfectly. And then the Tzir Sheba someone who actually can paint a picture, that's a Kishre, a skill. And then goes on to the three images from Raphael, the artist, the one with the, with the animal, with the, with the field, and the one of, I'm sorry, one animal, one is the war, and one is a field. 
So those three, and uses that as well, as well as one is a judgment in a, in a court, which is one of the images as well, one of the art. Beautiful essay, really beautiful. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's in Hebrew. And takes it into, extrapolates from it what we can use, how we can learn in our own lives how to recreate things, how to imagine things, how to use the chushat siyur, the ability to imagine, the ability to, to, um, the, the, uh, yeah, to imagine and to um, vivify a certain scene in our own personal growth and development. Very good essay, excellent essay, very original as well. Next essay. How trust in God is a tool to change exist, to change reality. Efrat Weber, Beitari Lit, age 32. So this essay, again, as the title suggests, it's exactly that, the power of Betochen. It's difficult, she writes, to, is this, yeah, to live in our generation. Because with all the comforts and all the developments, we have so much distraction and so many things that are confusing us so to find focus is a very difficult thing. And explains how betochen and trust is a great tool to be able to achieve that because it gives you a connection to something beyond and beyond our challenges. Creating peace of mind in a world that can be sometimes so chaotic. Describes the difference of betochen, the, general, the classic version of trust, and the way the Rebbe approaches it then talks about what trust is versus faith, Amuna. Brings a beautiful story and a few stories that um, capture the idea. And concludes with a whole bunch of tools of how we can use betochen and some of the stories from the Rebbe in our personal lives to help us grow. And not only is it about trust, but it's a trust that good will happen in our lives, and that opens up new channels. Okay, that's essay two. And finally, the third essay for today is Responsibility for causing us to be responsible people in our lives. Chai Mushke Prostin, age 19, Haifa, Israel, student in seminar base Chanet Svas. And talks exactly about that, about responsibility and the lack of responsibility. Where sometimes you have people who are very reckless, they talk well, but they're really irresponsible and they, they and best, best to stay away from such people. But goes on to describe what does it mean to be a responsible person. How to feel accountability and responsibility. The power of will of a person to overcome distractions in achieving that type of fo- focus with a whole bunch of steps. To know what the problem is to know your strengths and your skills. And that every situation to know is in order to bring growth. To be able to separate from the moment and look at the bigger picture. Again, a very, very good essay, well annotated. And with that, we conclude this week's episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 268. May we all experience personal redemption in Geula. Agula for each of us in our personal lives, physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, through our Mesidus Nefesh, complete dedication. And that should lead us to the Gula, Amitiz Vashleimah, even before Shivasar Betamuz, when Yehovchi Yom Emelu, Sosnul Simchul Lamaidim Tevim. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life Chesidus applied. Everyone be blessed, and again, a good Yantif.